Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. Good to have you on the show, Chris. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. A bit sore from over-exercise, but otherwise having a great time. How about you? Amazing. I know we were chatting before we started that you've done the Spartan race. Tell me, before we go into your journey in Bedrock, what motivates you to do these hardcore exercises or challenges? You know, Hadi, I wish I knew. I call my athletic pursuits arbitrary fitness goals. And I always say that I have to have all of these arbitrary fitness goals because arbitrary fitness goals are in my control. They're very, they're easy to achieve. You can accomplish great things as long as you just sort of actually train, which is very different from being a startup CEO when maybe your supplier cancels on you, goes out of business. You have no control out of who's going to compete with you, all of those other things. So it's a lot of ups and downs. And the great thing about arbitrary fitness goals is outside of injury, generally you can control the outcome. Do you feel as an entrepreneur and someone who loves working out that there is a difficulty in prioritizing the time? I prioritize work and generally which sometimes means that I don't train properly <laughs> for some of these events, which has its own repercussions. But yeah, it, it's fitting both in can be challenging, but you know, work always comes first. Amazing. So we have today Chris Benatti, the co-founder and CEO of Bedrock, which soon is to be known as Hudson Labs. And you're basically taking a financial language modeling and trying to help users summarize AI-generated investment memos, earnings calls, real-time risk assessment, and you've raised to date 1.5 million. If you were to summarize what exactly is Bedrock for someone who doesn't know what a language model is, how would you place it? Yeah, so we help public investors get through thousands of pages of text quickly and effectively. Some necessary context to understand what we do and why it's a problem all public entities, public corporations who are listed on a stock exchange have obligations to stakeholders, uh, which means that they put out a lot of information. Most of that information is in the form of text. It's qualitative information. If you're listening to this and you're not a professional investor, you may not actually be aware of this, but there are a slew of regulations that require all public companies to comply. You know, you've got your prospectus coming out when you go public, which is going to be many hundreds of pages long sometimes. You've got quarterly reporting, annual reporting, proxy circulars or info circulars. All of these are 100 pages up, depending on the company, mostly non-numeric information. And then you also have quarterly earnings calls, presentations, etc., so imagine being a public investor and trying to get all of the information you need when a lot of it is frankly bullshit, but a lot of it is really important. And you have to go through all of that information, not just for one company, 
but for say 15 to 50 companies that you cover. That's an extraordinarily difficult task. And right now the software solutions that help you with that task are primarily software solutions that are focused on the numeric aspect. So that's like a Bloomberg terminal where you can extract the financial data from those documents. But there's not a lot, historically, there hasn't been a lot of innovation around processing, summarizing, extracting qualitative information. And the great thing about language models is that language models allow computers to understand meaning, content, and context in a way that hasn't been possible in the past. So now a computer has a much more human approach to dealing with meaning, etc. So there's a lot more that we can now do using financial language modeling and financial language modeling architecture in order to help those investors achieve their tasks. And if you haven't heard the term language model, it's the same technology behind ChatGPT. Not all language models are generative, so they sometimes look a little bit different than what you're working with with ChatGPT, but it's the same type of idea where a model is understanding grammar, context, and meaning in human qualitative text. Essentially, are you taking the public data and training the model and then giving maybe a subscription service for that uh, public investor to go and ask questions? Or is are you giving the language model to the public investor and they are training it on maybe data set that they have? So we are not a foundational language modeling company. All that to say, we don't allow our end user to interact directly with any of our models. So unlike ChatGPT, you can't come in and ask any question you want. We use language models to solve specific problems, which might involve chaining six different language models together to achieve that task. So when you're interacting with our platform, the output is sometimes similar to something you could get using ChatGPT, like a summary, but there's minimal uh, customization in the product. We're enforcing how it's going to look and feel So you only get one summary option when you come into our product, at least right now. But what that means we can achieve is unlike ChatGPT, we can enforce consistency, factuality. We can tell you where the information came from. And that is huge. As I'm sure many people in this listening know, generative AI tends to lie, make up information. It's not a database, right? Uh, So you don't want to use one generative model for information retrieval, So by controlling the process end-to-end and providing the output and sort of hiding the AI process behind it, we're able to provide a much more consistent finance-specific product rather than letting the user interact directly with a model. Amazing. So how did you early on identify your customer profile and who you want to sell for and how did you find them? Yeah, so really early on... and as in most companies, our product and our core user has changed a bit over time. But really, where we started, I was working as a data scientist uh, specializing in corporate text processing and really amazed at how sparse the machine learning research was in that area. 
and we were getting a lot of attention from large organizations looking for support around text processing. So I quit my job saying, hey, this is clearly a a gap. But where we started was focusing on fraud. So what's one thing that you can use securities filings for? There's a lot of risk-based information. Fraud, corporate fraud, securities fraud, accounting fraud is an easy-to-measure outcome that we can test against and that we can build models around. So our early product was around predicting fraud, identifying fraud indicators, and that's specific to securities fraud. So FTX type fraud. So because that was the product that we could build, our early customers were defined by who cares about finding fraud. And the people who care the most about finding fraud is a very controversial user group. We support fully. I'm sure lots of people listening will be very offended by this, but short sellers. So early on, we were primarily selling to short sellers. We continue to sell to short sellers. And uh, yeah, we think they're great. (laughs) How do you find them? That's the interesting part. So is there a specific tactic or acquisition strategy that's non-scalable maybe that you found really good early on? Yeah. So funny enough, our first five beta users all were inbounds, but we got the initial bump through essentially a similar situation to this, but um, Alex Danko was writing the most popular financial substack at the time. Um, and he's someone I know from, from university, an incredible guy. His substack isn't quite as active any, anymore, but uh, really fantastic information. But he did an interview with me on that newsletter, which led to inbounds. And we kind of got to pick and choose our favorite early users, which was very helpful. And then from there on out, it was helpful that we had a very niche product and knew that there was a very niche user group that would want our product. And there's a whole bunch of activist short sellers who are very public. So you know exactly who they are, what they care about. They're publishing research all the time. So you can usually reach out to them directly or if not directly via Twitter, they're all on Twitter. And that was actually a big way that people found us early on was by posting about specific names, about specific stocks from a risk perspective on Twitter, starting a conversation around those stocks, then that would create interest in what we were doing and how we were finding that information. Amazing. So what would be the value proposition to them when you're pitching your idea? Is it time-saving? Is it increasing the accuracy of their... What's the value prop here? So early on, which is different, our value prop has evolved over time. But early on, our value prop was defined as idea generation. So when you're an investor, you want to find ideas for either good stocks to invest in. And if you're a short seller, you want ideas for bad stocks to bet against. So we were surfacing ideas for bad stocks. So your first challenge was Twitter reaching out to these short sellers that are not. That's a non-scalable strategy, but Paul Graham advises when you start, maybe it could be a good and interesting way to prove product market fit. Mm-hmm. How did that evolve next? Yeah. So our acquisition strategy, we've tried a whole bunch of things. And where we've landed is in finance, in capital markets tech, If your competitors are a Bloomberg terminal 
or these massive companies, really you should be taking an old school, traditional sales approach. That's where we landed. Anyone else here who runs a company, as I'm sure you've experienced, Hadi, venture capitalists do not encourage you to take that approach. So we have tried literally everything else. We're currently the top SEO spot for AI and equity research, which is fantastic. That's been working really well for us. But before that, yeah, we were trying a content first strategy, which I think is a helpful addition to a sales team, but it wasn't enough to carry us forward. So we were creating interesting content, trying to pitch that to the media, putting that on Twitter, creating a more social content-based approach to acquisition, which had some great... We now have great relationships with a lot of people, a lot of newspapers and financial media outlets, which has been really fantastic for us. We tried a freemium approach, a self-serve approach, but there's a really interesting dynamic in finance where if you see a product for free, you believe that it does not work. Freemium... We spent a bunch of time putting up self-serve, putting up freemium, trying to get that to work, trying to drive people to the site, and it had a negative impact on conversion. Very few people signed up. We've really gone the other direction. If you're listening and you're trying to build for capital markets tech, hopefully our mistakes can help you. Amazing. Thank you for sharing this. I mean, it makes sense because you're you're selling essentially a product that should be premium because it's providing certain advice. So if you approach someone and say it's free, they probably would think this is too good to be true, right? So how did you then know what price to put? What was your positioning price to make sure that the sweet spot to attract the right ICP? Yeah, early, what we would do was quote a price. Someone would say no. And then we'd say, fine, you can have it at half that for the first year only and see if they said yes. And we just played with it a lot and ended up mostly at about two to five grand per seat in our first year. But quoting people, you know, 20 grand for an enterprise contract. So that would be for the team, but then ended up whittling it down to just sort of like one seat for half price, which was a great way to get in the door and move up from there. Amazing. What's the best advice you received so far? Oh, don't listen to anyone's advice. Who who told you this advice? (laughs) (laughs) A fellow capital markets tech founder. That's an interesting one, but can you elaborate why you think it's, it's the right advice or the best advice for you? It's clearly a massive overstatement, but I absolutely understand where my friend was coming from because the people who are giving you advice often aren't people who know your industry well. And I'm sure you feel this working in insurance, but finance is a much bigger and more complex fields than people think. So I started out my career as an accountant. So people think, say, you know, I'm a finance person. That's not entirely true. You know, the difference between an investment banker, a trader, an equity analyst, 
all of these different roles, someone who works internally in finance at a corporation, they do such incredibly different things. The market dynamics are incredibly different. So you can have someone coming to you saying, oh, I really understand the finance industry. They don't understand your business. They don't understand your customer segment. And most people don't. You know, eventually you do end up finding people who really understand your business segment, your customer group, etc. But that's not most people. And if you are listening to advice from VCs, especially generalist VCs, you're more likely than not to be listening to the wrong information. That said, we've also had investors give us great advice. So I don't want to overgeneralize here. No, absolutely. You have a really valid point. What I find interesting from people who are giving advice is not what they tell you, but what they ask you. So if the quality of the questions they ask are really good, you would understand or veer into the direction that they're taking you. And then you would say, okay, this makes a lot of sense. I haven't considered it. And then that would automatically translate into a really good advice. So the quality of questions I noticed are much better than the actual advice someone gives you. But what is the principle that you live by that has served you well in your journey? We have a couple principles that I really like that are part of our culture documents. One of them is keep it simple, stupid. That sounds pretty insane for a state-of-the-art AI company, but it's a really important reminder that just because we are an AI research team and doing really cool work that's pushing the boundaries of what's possible in this field, that's not the important thing. The AI research is not the important thing. The important thing is solving the customer's problem. So if we can solve the customer's problem with a simplistic, heuristic-based code snippet, then we are not building a you know, huge language model to solve this task. And that is very much an approach specific to sort of how we approach development. But I think it applies to our approach to running the business as well is, you know, stay focused on the customer's problems, tune out everything else, tune out all of your peers, their new valuation rounds, the AI hype cycle, the market cycle as much as you can, and focus on what you have conviction in and what your customers are telling you over all of the noise that's coming at you. One last question, Chris, what's next for Bedrock? We're in a really exciting spot right now. As much as I say, ignore the AI hype cycle, the AI hype cycle has been really great for us. And I say that, of course, we are bullish on AI. (laughs) We are an AI company, but you have to have your head in the sand to think that all of the insane headlines are in fact true. You know, we are clearly in the midst of a hype cycle and that will come crashing down at some point. But there's an incredible wind at our back right now where there's so much pressure on teams to implement new tools. And you don't usually have that type of urgency in a sales process where someone's been told, we need to get ahead of our competition and implement a new technology right now. And that's been super great for us. The other thing about the AI push right now is, and this is going to sound strange, but we have so much competition now. And it's 
awesome because previously we had such a unique product. It made it hard to convey, to sell because this technology has never existed before. But now that they're sort of everyone and their mom is trying to provide summaries of securities filings and earnings transcript summaries, et cetera, the sales process has become, okay, look at this output from a competitor. Now look at ours. It's better. <laughs> Buy it. You know, having competition is sometimes a huge, a huge boon because it means that, you know, everyone else is validating that the need is there and it becomes becomes a much easier marketing pitch when there are a million other competing products. And you can tell them very simply what the differences are because they're aware of the product. You don't have to educate them that this is something that exists. Amazing. Thank you for stopping by, Chris. How can people reach you and are you hiring? We are not hiring yet. Please connect with us on Twitter at Bedrock AI on LinkedIn and at www.bedrock-ai.com. And if you'd like to get in touch with me on LinkedIn, I'm Chris Bonatti. And just a note, we will soon be Hudson Labs. So our domain will be, in about 12 months, we'll be changing to hudsonlabs.com. So look out for us there as well. Thank you very much, Chris, for stopping by. We wish you the best of luck on your journey. Thanks so much for the great time and a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers. 